Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller, and we're ready for this week's edition of 48 Days Online Radio, where each week... We grab 48 minutes to scan some questions that have come in, questions that you and I both ask about this changing, volatile, intimidating, terrifying, exciting, opportunistic job market that we're in right now. Yeah, it has all of those characteristics about it. So let's just jump right in here, see what people are asking. This week, people are asking, is there a risk of being seen as a job hopper if I switch positions too often? Mike says, I just wanted to say thanks for giving me the nudge to get out of the nest. When I'm old and decrepit, I'm afraid I'll look back in my life and wished I'd done more, tried more, and didn't play it safe. Is that wrong of me to have that concern motivate me? Interesting question. You know, as usual, we've got questions that are psychological, philosophical, sociological, theological, all those logicals. You know, we chose a name for our publishing company yeah, several years ago now and call it Vitology Press. I love that word because vital implies, you know, life-giving, but the ology just kind of tags onto all the ologies that I find attractive. So we use that term, Vitology Press. Incidentally, you won't really find that word out there, except it was the title of an album that Pearl Jam did a few years ago. So it gave it even more kind of artistic appeal when Jared, my son, and I were thinking about names. So it is Vitology Press. That's what you see on the back of all the products that we have published in-house. I'm in that process right now, again, talking to publishers, have a book proposal out there, a book that Jared and I would do together on wisdom meets passion. Um, So getting a lot of interest from publishers and just talking to them and going through the discussions to determine, am I going to work with a publisher or do it myself? I mean, we're in a position where we've done a lot of both, and I know my hands are not tied one way or the other, so we're just having interesting discussions. Those of you who are just here for our Right to the Bank event uh, heard me talk more about that. You know the options as well if you want to get things into print, or if you're a musician, or if you're an artist. I mean, it's really the same for any of those. You know, do you have to wait until you get some big company that says, we think you have a great idea, we're going to help you do it? Or can you just do it yourself? Well, the obstacles for doing things ourselves have been erased. Anybody can be a player. Anybody can jump in the game. So it, it's fun to have those conversations. Well, where, where was I? Here, another question is, my husband has been unemployed for the past two years and has no current job prospects. We'll comment on that. Well, here's one. Dan, why have you chosen to compromise the word of God in some areas? May need some clarification on that. And then somebody says, when good things happen to other people, I'm always asking, what's the catch? How can I overcome this thought pattern? Well, great questions as always. If you ever got a question, you can go to the podcast link, submit it there. You can also just shoot an email to askdan at 48days.com or you can call voice number and leave a voice question as well. That number is 304 729 4848. Again, 304 729 
48. Our quotation for today is short and simple. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Now, if you haven't heard that before, and you probably have, it's been around a while, but that came, that was on the back cover of the final edition in 1974 of the Whole Earth Catalog. Now, some of you are probably not old enough to remember the Whole Earth Catalog, but believe me, I am, and it was a, it was a cool thing. You know, it was one of those earth-friendly, kind of innovative, fun, hippy-dippy kind of product catalogs where we were all going to be, you know, we were all part of the zero growth population. We were going to limit the number of kids we had. We were going to make the world green and all those wonderful things. Anyway, the whole earth catalog in the very back of that, it said, stay hungry, stay foolish. Now that's been popularized because Steve Jobs used that in his 2005 commencement speech at Stanford University. He ended up saying, stay hungry, stay foolish, and I have always wished that for myself. And now as you graduate to begin anew, I wish that for you. So that's our quote. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Well, Steve says, Dan, I found you recently via Dave Ramsey. I'm thankful I did. In short, you've inspired me to believe that I'm capable of stepping outside of the rigid, predictable life in which I previously felt trapped. Well, good. Uh, I'd like to pursue something about which I am both knowledgeable and passionate, teaching businesses and individuals about the DISC model of behavior. There are so many applications, and I feel confident headed in any number of directions. However, being a skeptic, analytical person by nature, I can't help but question certain aspects of this potential transition. Number one, is the DISC model or associated information copyrighted in any way that I would need to consider before speaking publicly on the topic. Let me just address these as as we go through. Yes, I mean, the DISC model is copyrighted, protected, and all of that. What that means is you can't take the printed material word for word as it's published in somebody else's manual. And there there are a lot of companies that use the DISC template for their materials. TTI, out of Scottsdale, Arizona, Target Training International, they're a big one. Inscape, out of Minneapolis, is another big one that uses the DISC terminology and materials. IML, Institute for Motivational Living, out of Pennsylvania, uh, that's who we work with on the material. So, yeah, it's a license. Now, I mean, we we do, golly, we've got people that do conferences, do training. My daughter, Ashley, works with companies like State Farm, teaching them the DISC principles. I mean, we're buying materials and that benefits the companies who have the protected trademarks and so on. But you can go out and talk about it all you want. I mean, you can talk about the Myers-Briggs, you can talk about the Berkman, you can talk about strength finders. I mean, you can talk about those and use those as teaching models all you want to. And you don't need to worry about somebody's going to come after you because you're using uh, the terms that have been copyright protected. Just be careful about copy, uh, copying materials. Now, again, we use a lot of materials. I mean, we license the profiles, the disc profiles. So we pay a licensing fee for every profile produced. Now we sell thousands of those. They're hottest selling product. And so we, you know, we aren't restricted in how we can sell that. And we do a lot of ancillary materials to support those. And we just simply pay a licensing fee for the computerized profiles that we get. Now, number two, is there any liability for teaching and counseling on personality and behavior without an advanced degree or an LLC as a foundation for my speaking engagements, as long as I have not misled anyone to believe that I am licensed in any way? No, 
I mean, you can have an eighth grade education and go teach it if you want to. I mean, nobody's going to criticize you for that. Obviously, you don't misrepresent that, but I mean, companies will hire you based on the value of what you have to present and are likely not to look at degrees, licensing. Now, I have I have licensing and certification as a disc presenter and profiler, but I, I did that for the personal learning that would take place, not so I could impress anybody with my credentials. So if you want to become an expert in that area, you may want to go through some certification or training or licensing uh, process, but uh, it's not going to be the key thing that makes you credible in the business world. And number three, sure, I can trademark a catchy name and print business cards, but at what point do I determine to create a true company? Well, I would encourage you to trade a true company from day one. You know, start to build your own brand, start to build your own audience. Now you can coattail on the credibility of the disc profile and that's fine. I mean, then there are a lot of people who have become licensed distributors for the 48 days materials as an example. So they coattail on the brand awareness of that name, or you can present materials through the Stephen Covey company or Tony Robbins or Brian Tracy. I mean, it, those are all legitimate ways to get started, but I would encourage you if you're really going to do this to create your own logo, your own name, your own brand, and start to build your own audience as well. Well, Mike says, Dan, my wife and I came to see you in 2006. I just wanted to give you an update on where we are currently. We adopted five-year-old Clifford from Haiti in 2009. I left my, now he was a physician when he came to see me, a licensed doc, medical degree. He says, I left my previous position as an employed physician in 2008. I finished my master's of medical management degree from Tulane in 2009. Now, that's really what we worked on when we worked on a transition. He didn't want to just be a doc, just seeing, you know, 30 patients a day, just whipping them through. He wanted to be more in the teaching management side. So he went back and got his master's of medical management, became medical chief officer of a startup wound care company in 2009, and he will start as chief medical officer of Hendry Regional Medical Center in May of 2011, next month. Just wanted to say thanks for giving me a nudge to get out of my nest. Hope all is going well for you and your family. Well, thanks for the update, Mike. I remember well working with you and your wife in that process and your desire to move away from just the traditional practice of medicine, and you've done exactly that. You know, a lot of times, advanced degrees instead of increasing our options in some ways decrease our options because people with a an md or a dds or a jd behind their name you know feel like they're trapped because of the time and energy and money spent on their degrees and feeling like their options are very limited they really are not I mean, we just have to kind of strip that away take a fresh look at it and here's an example of a guy with an md but then went back and got a master's in medical management so he really could move into the managing administrating paid part of medical community and now he's chief medical officer at a regional medical center how cool is that that's awesome. Well, Brad had a question, and Brad uh, left it on the telephone number that I gave you a little earlier, that phone number that you can use if you want to leave an audio message. It's 304-729-4848. Here's Brad's question. Hi, Dan. This is Brad. I'm from Michigan, and I just had a question. I'm going to try to keep it brief and cover some big details. Um, I've referred a lot of your uh, 
uh, resources, podcasts, and uh, webinars, and your website, your books. To many people, have been a blessing to many people. Please keep up the good work. The uh, the question is this, um, which is actually kind of a two-part question. I live in a resort area where there's about five window cleaning companies that kind of dominate the area, and I'm one of them. I've been doing it for about five years. I net about 50000 a year. And I have one of my competitors, friendly competitor, I've known him, he's an honorable man who's been doing it for 10 years, who is interested in selling his business to me. He nets about 60 to 65. Um, and again, that's only working about seven months out of the year because we have nasty winters, but gorgeous summers that make up for it. And he's looking to get about $80,000 cash out of the business. So my two questions is this. Would you consider an opportunity like that? And he's again, he's been doing it 10 years. Eighty thousand dollars is what he's looking for. He gets about sixty to sixty-five out of the business every year. And if you would, uh, I have friends that are investors who I've thought about approaching instead of going through typical financing. Um, would you do that in, in a way that would be a win-win for them? Get any creative ideas? I appreciate it. Again, God bless. Keep up the great work. I look forward to uh, listening to the podcast as I do every week. Thanks. Bye. Well, thanks for your question, Brad. Now we're talking about a business that is very labor intensive. So when you talk about a business where he's been netting sixty or seventy thousand and he wants eighty for the business, the question is, what are you buying? I assume there's very little in the way of real tangible assets. Now, if you're buying a fleet of five vans and you know extension ladders because he's been doing high rises, you know then we're going to have fixed assets. But I suspect more what you're buying is just the goodwill or PR of his business. So then you have to realistically ask how much is that worth? I mean, if you take that on and then you're going to have, let's just say that you're physically busy. You're maxed out already at what you're doing in your own window washing business. And to take his on would require that you hire somebody to fulfill the obligations of that company. So all of a sudden, that 60,000 net shrinks dramatically because you're paying somebody to fulfill the work. I, from, from my vantage point, I would have a hard time seeing why that business would be worth 80,000 to be worth more than the annual net, you know, is, is, uh, you know, you could question that to start with, but the real thing is what are you getting? If you're just getting a list of his customers, I really don't think that's a reasonable investment. I mean, ultimately, people do business with who they want to do business with. So just you having a list of his customers and he walks off the scene and now you're going to do it doesn't guarantee that you're going to maintain those customers. You have to provide great service or they're going to go to one of the other competitors anyway. If you really do provide great service, how could you just be 10% better than the other players in that market? How could you do something that provided added value so that you capture a bigger share of the market anyway? Now, this is not just to be cutthroat, but I I really question buying somebody else's customer list in a very labor-intensive business. I think you're better off just to concentrate on your own business and expand it by doing great service. Well, John says, Dan... As an employee in the corporate world, is there a minimum number of years I should stay in a position before looking for other opportunities? Is there a risk of being seen as a job hopper if I switch positions too often? Well, now, if you're a, it depends on the kind of position, for one thing. If you're a CEO and you change jobs every six months, yeah, that's going to raise some red flags. What if you're in technology? What if you're a web designer? 
or a graphic designer. You know, you're doing something in the design arena. I mean, it almost is expected that a company goes through an initial stage where they need heavy work in those areas. And then after they get more to a maintenance area, they don't need as much work there. So people who are really good in that arena often change jobs frequently. Now, keep in mind just what the averages is. I mean, I just put brand new stats in the new version of 48 Days to the Work You Love. We know that between 18 and 42 years old, the average is that someone will have 10.8 jobs. Now, these are real. These are from the government averages, 10.8 jobs between 18 and 42. So that means the average length of time is, what is that? That's 2.2 years. The average length of time on a job for somebody in their 20s in the United States right now is 13 months. So I, I don't know what you consider often, but people are changing you know, every couple years, that's not uncommon. So if you've stayed at a place for six years, that's a long stint. Now, you have to ask in your industry, what is going to be seen as too much? I mean, there are some things where a potential employer looking at it would see staying in the same place, you know, for 25 years as a negative rather than a positive. I mean, employers say, wow, is this person not staying up with the times? I mean, keep in mind how a career path is likely to go at this point. It's not likely that somebody starts at the bottom and moves their way up vertically up a horizontal or up a vertical ladder in an organization. I mean, that implies that you did one thing last year. This year, you're doing something else. Next year, you'll be doing something else. That's not a very typical career path today. People know clearly what it is they do well. So they can move from organization to organization and have an upward progression in their career path by moving from company to company, rather than thinking that they can move up in one organization where you're going to move out of doing what it is you do well. I mean, it's just counterintuitive to think that you could move, start in the mailroom and someday you're going to be the CEO. I mean, that just doesn't happen any anymore. It might have happened back, you know, working on the railroad, but it, it's not going to happen today. So now if you're moving every couple of years, that's not going to be seen as being a job hopper. And in most career paths, that's going to be seen as somebody who's really paying attention out there and very accepted by potential employers. Mert says, from Texas, I'm content with my job and my company's pretty good to me. I'm appreciative, but when I'm old and decrepit, I'm afraid I'll look back in my life and wished I'd done more, tried more, and didn't play it so safe. Is that wrong of me to have that kind of concern motivate me? Your thoughts? Well, my feedback to that, I love the way you describe that. When you're old and decrepit, you're afraid you'll look back in your life and wish you'd done more, tried more, and play it, didn't play it so safe. Well, my, my encouragement is, if that is a concern of yours, make sure it doesn't happen. I mean, you're absolutely right. You don't talk to an old person who says, Golly, I wish I wouldn't have, you know, traveled as much or tried as much or done as much or, you know, spent as much time playing with my kids. You don't find that being true. It's always, I wish I had done more in that area. So if you're feeling that, I mean, here, here's a quote that is popular that may help you. Risk more than others think is safe. Care more than others think is wise. Dream more than others think is practical. Expect more than others think is possible. Now, when I got out of graduate school, I was about, well, how old was I? I was out, for, out, of, 
after my bachelor's degree for about five years. So whatever that adds up to be, 75, yeah, I was about 27 years old or so. Had my master's degree, and we were living in Kentucky, Bowling Green, Kentucky. We decided to move to Southern California. Now, there was no reason or rationale for that. It was a long ways away from family. And, but we just didn't want to grow old wishing we had lived in sunny California near the beach. So we moved there. We lived there for four years. If you try things, you'll end up knowing what really is authentically you. But if you play it safe, you're always going to suspect that the grass really was green around the other side of the fence. So I love the idea of trying things. I mean, I, I'm a change agent. Now, not everybody is as comfortable you know, changing things as I am. But if you are afraid that you're going to end up like that, absolutely. Risk more than others think is safe. Dream more than others think is practical. Those things I mentioned in the quote, do those things so you don't end up old and decrepit wishing you had done more of all those things. Man, great question. Love it, love it, love it. You know, no matter where you are, if you're if you're 25 years old or if you're 45 or if you're 65 or if you're 75, you know, if, if you have a concern that you haven't done enough, you haven't tried enough, start today. You, there was a movie a couple years ago, you know, The Bucket List, with Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, I think, were, were players in that. You know, cute movie. And so a lot of people have identified what they have on their bucket list. But we start moving through your bucket list. I mean, Lou Holtz was unemployed college football coach, like 47 years old, you know, a failure in most everything he did. And somebody gave him the little book, The Magic of Thinking, of Thinking Big. Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. He read that, got inspired, and made a list of 100 things he wanted to do before he died. Now, the last I heard, now, Lou was a pretty old guy at this point, but the last I heard, he had done like 98 of those things. But you also see what it, impact that had on his professional life. I mean, my gosh, you know, became famous as, you know, football coach. You know, did amazing kind of things with kids. He got inspired to do more than he had done up to that point in his life. Again, it was like 47 years old when that happened. So start now, but make sure that when you look back on your life, you say, wow, what a ride. Well, Jessica says, I'm thinking of starting to, I'm thinking of starting to do consulting work to help livestock farmers raise organic animals by intensively grazing them. My biggest problem is I don't know how to get started and should I get liability insurance when starting out? Well, don't worry about liability insurance. I mean, you're giving advice and training. I mean, don't make a startup business or a little training program you know, some, so complex that you're fearful and end up not doing it. Just get out there and do it. I mean, life is not that complicated. So you don't need to be complicated. Give yourself a name. Yeah. Get a business license. So you're officially in business, open a checking account and you're ready to go. You don't need, you know, the EIN numbers from the government. You don't need a resale license for what you're describing here. You're just giving advice, doing consulting, just start doing that. And you can do that as a sole proprietorship. You don't need to form an S corp or an LLC or anything like that. This is not something where you have a high likelihood of liability exposure, just do it. Now, how do you do that? If you have the knowledge, you know how to help livestock farmers, get out here and talk to 150 of them. 
mean, that's the way you start doing that. I mean, this is not something where they're likely to respond because you run a little ad in a farmer's magazine or in the newspaper or on radio or TV. Get out here and make face-to-face contacts. But if you do that, if you really get out there and talk to 150 farmers, and no matter what your idea is, you're going to have five or six that say, yeah, let's do this. You know, help me with this. And all of a sudden, you get a business. Great, great area. I, I mean, it sounds like a cool thing. A lot of people are more interested in raising organic meat. I mean, I know a lady who came back to her daddy's cotton farm and he'd been raising cotton for years and years and years, the family tradition, and just eking out a living. She took about four acres of that and started raising organic cotton. Now it's more time consuming. It's more complicated a little to do that, but I mean, she's getting like 20 times as much for her cotton as daddy is for his just his regular field cotton. I mean, think about it. What is cotton used for? I mean, how about ladies who remove makeup? Would they prefer cotton that was organically grown rather than something that had pesticides sprayed all over it? Yeah. I mean, what about um, Q-tips for your ears? I mean, I'm just pulling these out of a hat, but think about the things where people would prefer organic cotton. Well, in the same way, Obviously, people prefer organic meat for a whole lot of reasons. And if you can show farmers how to do that, they can increase their prices, carve out new niches in the marketplace. Man, great idea. Well, Greg says, I live in a sports-oriented city, and and it's Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I see here from his address. We attend a lot of recreational and school sporting events. I would like to offer and sell cushioned logo stadium seats with armrests for comfort to those in the bleachers. Do I try and sell wholesale to the schools or retail myself in the parking lots? What would you do? I've never been a salesman. Well, it's a great idea. And of course, something that's been done a lot. And when you see something with Ohio State on it or Auburn or Mississippi or whatever, these college schools, I mean, though you have licensing issues there. Now you have licensing issues immediately, even if it's just with your local high school. So you really need to talk to them and get their support. You can't just take their logo and put it on a t-shirt or a cushioned stadium seat um, there is a licensing issue there. Now, it's not insurmountable. If you talk to the local school and tell them, gee, you're going to give them 5% of all your sales, they may say, cool, go at it. And that, that's all you need. Usually, individual colleges are going to have a licensing fee of somewhere between 8 and 10% of the retail price. But this is just like a franchise. Or, or I mean, if you show up at a concert and you're going to, you're going to have Carrie Underwood t-shirts. You can't stand outside the stadium where she's playing and sell t-shirts with Carrie Underwood on them. I mean, that's a licensing issue. You have to get the licensing permission from that organization. NASCAR is the most highly licensed organization in the world. They make millions and millions and millions of dollars because of licensing on products, probably more so than on the races themselves. If you want to check out, now I'm not sure if you're talking... Well, in Pittsburgh, I mean, if you're talking about colleges, there is a licensing organization. It's called Collegiate Licensing Company. I'm quite sure that's it. You can Google that, Collegiate Licensing Company, and it'll give you the guidelines there. Now, if you if you want to do something like with the NFL, so you want to have the Pittsburgh Steelers, well, the NFL um, has a flat fee to start with of, I think it's about $100,000. 
that's a flat fee to start with. And then they still get a royalty on everything that you sell. So that's big bucks when you move into, you know, the pro teams, something like the, well, baseball, I think that's going to be maybe $50,000. But even like the NCAA, uh, the college basketball, yeah, most of those, I mean, that's going to be like a $5,000 advance flat fee plus a royalty of maybe 10% of everything that you sell. So those are the issues you're going to have to deal with. Again, don't let that deter you. If that's what you want to do, just ask the schools that you want to work with and get some kind of an agreement and then do it. Now, you're, you're going to make a whole lot more money if you sell it yourself. If you just produce them and sell them to the school, then all you are is a manufacturer. Manufacturers don't make any money. People who sell products make money. So keep yourself on the selling side. Uh, you may do both, but uh, the big bucks are going to be in selling it yourself, whether it's you stand outside the stadium or get a booth inside. I mean, look at all the options. They have fun with it and knock it out of the park. Well, Jeanette says... My husband has been unemployed for the past two years and has no current job prospects. Is there anything he can add to his CV to attract employers? Thank you, frustrated wife. Wow, boy, I empathize with you in that situation. Two years is way too long. You know, I mean, I I talk about 48 days a lot because I think that's a reasonable time to assess your situation, get the advice and opinion of other people, list your alternatives, choose the best three or four, do a little bit more research, pick the best one and act. Now that's a process for making decisions, but it's certainly a process for getting positions as well. Getting jobs is a process and your success has to do with how well you do the process. Your success has very little to do with the economy who's in the White House, and what color the sky is on this particular day. It it really does. I don't want to just make it sound like I walk in the park, but two years is way too long, and it has nothing to do with the economy. Something's wrong. Now, this is done in sequence where you do an introspective search to identify what is it that you really do well. What is it that you have as the strongest area of competence? Once you do that, and only then is it reasonable to put together a resume, or in this case, you ask about a CV, which is a curriculum vitae. It's it's another word for that. It really, you know, that implies, now I just have your one sentence here, Jeanette. You just say your husband's been unemployed for two years. Is there anything you can add to his CV to attract employers? A CV implies an engineer, an, an attorney, physician, somebody in a professional position. If that's true, that adds another little wrinkle, not really making it any difference, but it implies that maybe he already has a professional degree. But we can see where is the challenge. If somebody has not gotten any interviews at all, then it is reasonable to look at the resume or CV. What is it that is not attractive there? You know, why is this not an effective sales brochure for your husband. Why is it that in looking at that, people don't even have any interest in talking to him? I mean, that's where you start. Now, if in fact he has sent out his CV and he has had 10 interviews and from those never got a job offer, then we know there the challenges in another area. It's not in his CV because that's doing exactly what we want to do, getting enough interest to generate interviews. But if somebody, even in today's environment, has had four or five 
interviews and has not had a job offer, then we need to look squarely at what are you doing in the interview that's sabotaging your success? Why do people not want you on their team? Get somebody that you role play with to ask those questions. Switch roles. You be the interviewer and have somebody play you. I mean, get to the bottom of it. But this is a process that you can get through. It is not true that nobody's hiring. The economy is horrible, you know, blah, blah, blah. There are companies who are desperately looking for people who really understand clearly what value they bring to the table. So your husband has to be real clear. What is his value? Why would he be an asset to an organization? If he's just looking for somebody to give him a job, yep, that's going to be very transparently seen and nobody has jobs to give. Nobody owes your husband anything. Nobody wants to give him a paycheck. But if he can convey why the company's going to be more successful because he's involved, any company's going to hire him. I mean, we have to look at, so that's the continuum. We have to be very clear. What is it that you bring a value? And all you have to do is walk in one place and convince them that they're losing out if they don't have you on, on board and they're going to offer you a position. So it's not a matter of somebody giving you a job. It's a matter of you conveying to a company why they would benefit at having you involved. Well, this comes from, from Sandra. Now, this is one of those, you know, I have to kind of scratch my head on. Dan, from No More Mondays, I see that you grew up a fundamentalist, but have moved to a new evangelical mindset. These days, you endorse Joel Osteen and other heretics. You also speak a lot about getting wealthy in your book, and you may love money. Why have you chosen to compromise the word of God in some areas? Now, I take these questions seriously, but frankly, I don't know how in the world to frame that. I mean, I, I don't know what that means. I've chosen to compromise the word of God in some areas. I endorse Joel Osteen and other heretics. Okay. And, and Joel's a heretic help me understand how Joel is a heretic. I mean, is Rick Warren a heretic? To some people he is. Is T.D. Jakes a heretic? To some people he is. Is Creflo Dollar a heretic? To a lot of people he is. I mean, I, I wear that title pretty lightly because it's applied to so many people. I mean, if we really look up the word heretic, it says a professed believer who maintains religious opinions contrary to those accepted by his church or rejects doctrines prescribed by that church. All right? So anybody who's a believer who maintains religious opinions contrary to those accepted by his church. All right, now, if you read No More Mondays, I share in there that I was raised Mennonite. So my grandparents were Amish, horse and buggy, no electricity, no running water. My parents then decided they would become conservative Mennonite. My dad had this straight jacket that buttoned up, never wore a tie in his life. Um, we did eventually get running water when I was in about the eighth grade. They eventually had cars. They were always black. But now my parents were seen as heretics in the Amish community. All right. That I mean, that's pretty easy to identify. They were seen as her heretics there. I off the Mennonite church. Now, just, just for whatever it's worth, I mean, I have been a full active member in the Mennonite church. Grace Brethren, community churches, non-denominational, um, United Pentecostal Church, 
at least with those her- those uh, histories. Southern Baptist, I've been a Southern Baptist deacon. I've been on the board in Assemblies of God Church. We've been a part of Presbyterian Church, Methodist Church, and uh, I still have a few to uh, that we haven't gotten to yet. Now, that means that for each one that that we left, I am now a heretic. Okay, so be it. I mean, I everybody who is a believer is a heretic to somebody else. I guess I don't know how to avoid that, and and frankly, I don't know how to. I, I you could never profess anything and not be described as a heretic by yet another believer. And frankly, you know, I mean, I get a whole lot more criticism from Christians than I do from non-Christians. And even though we're talking about, you know, career, business kind of issues, you know, Christians are quick to categorize and throw you out because somehow something you said didn't line up with the narrow beliefs that they have. It really grieves me, you know, to, uh, to, to see that happen. I mean, I got big shoulders. I can take it. I mean, I'm, I don't bring it on. Uh, it's just inevitable. Anybody who has any kind of success, any kind of visibility at all is going to get it. And I, I know that just comes with the territory, but it, but it grieves me to see Christians with all the infighting that they do and all the criticizing of each other. I mean, goodness, we've got enough to do to try to, you know, be salt and light to a world out there. But I mean, I don't find it very attractive when Christians are shooting arrows at each other more than they are at the rest of the people outside. Anyway, it's a sad state of affairs, but I, I'm sorry that I strike you as a heretic, and I, and I, re- I have no idea. I really don't. I don't know what that means. Um, if um, I'm not sure what that means. I grew up as a fundamentalist. You better believe it. I grew up in a very strict household, but I'm very, very comfortable in a wide variety of church environments. I get asked to speak in a wide variety of denominational settings. And I'm honored that I'm able to do that. I'm very much at home speaking back in the Mennonite churches where I have opportunities or speaking in Methodist churches or Presbyterian. I mean, I speak in all those churches and respect those people for their beliefs. And I don't accuse them of being heretics because it's not the flavor of the week for me. All right, hey, enough, uh, enough there. Just uh, be respectful of of each other. Honor other people in their own journey. Um, be slow to pull the trigger on somebody who has a particular belief that you don't. You know, I could go through all those denominations that I was a part of and just look at the form of baptism. <laughs> I mean, and, and I've done them all, incidentally, too, and I'm sure for some of you that will make me even more of a heretic. But in the Mennonite church, I mean, I was baptized by my pa- by dad, who was the pastor, by pouring. Well, when we got the grace brethren, that wasn't enough. You had to be baptized by immersion, triune immersion. And if you understand the theological term there, that means I had to go down under the water three times. Going down once was not enough. You know, when it became Southern Baptist, they didn't think that was good enough there. They wanted us to be baptized as Southern Baptist, where you go down once in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
yet another church we were involved in. I won't try to describe that, but they believed in being baptized in the name of Jesus only, not three. So I'm pretty well covered in that arena, but I'm sure that for many people along the way, you know, it would be seen as heretical to be baptized in one way and not another. So again, I'm, I'm pretty covered all the way around there. Well, where was I here? Donna says, it's hard to give yourself deadlines. How do we learn the self-discipline we need when we have been worker bees all of our lives? Without a deadline and clear direction, it's very hard to keep knowing, working or know what to do next. Well, that's, if you know that you're lacking in self-discipline, then work on that. Create your own deadlines rather than wait on somebody else to superimpose those on you. In No More Mondays, I talk about the predictors of success, you know, those being passion, talent, determination, faith, and self-discipline. Without self-discipline, the others don't work. You have to have that if you're going to achieve any kind of success at all. So if you know that you've been used to being a worker bee and having other people tell you where to be, when, and what to do, boy, just raise your hand. Start doing some things on your own aside from work where you create deadlines for yourself. We just had a big group here. We had 55 people here for a Right to the Bank uh, event last week. Nobody is telling somebody you have to write a chapter a week or a page a day or you have to have this book. Nobody, I mean, to write, you have to be your own taskmaster. You have to decide that's important enough to do and create some kind of a schedule and a timeline to work you through that you know, very challenging process. So it's a given in some things that you have to have self-discipline or it's not going to happen. I mean, even in things like music, now you may have had parents that made you take piano lessons, but at some point it becomes your own challenge and people who uh, end up with notable names, you know, practice four or five hours a day. Well, nobody's forcing them to do that, but it comes from self-discipline where you think the end goal is worth it. So do that. Again, don't just artificially say, I need to be self-disciplined. Just set some goals for yourself that you think are worthy, some things that really are important to you. Then create a timeline, and all of a sudden you'll find that, hey, those dreams have turned into real goals. They aren't just dreams and wishes. Everybody has those. Now they're goals, and it only becomes a goal if it has a timeline connected to it. And you don't execute a timeline unless you are self-disciplined. So you can kind of back into building self-discipline by having a worthy goal, create a timeline, carry that out, and you have just shown self-discipline. Greg says, uh, my friend is good at letting things happen for him, and I'm always asking, what's the catch? How can I overcome this thought pattern? So it appears that, Greg, you observe other people who have good things come their way, and then you think, gee, how lucky, you know, what's the catch, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's a... A lot of these things that we're talking about today, identifying the problem is a big part of the solution. If you think that you are too conservative, you're not taking enough chances, you're not risking, you're going to regret it someday. I mean, that's a big step toward correcting that for yourself. And with this, if you know that you tend to be cynical, skeptical, what's the catch and what's the fatal flaw where you see why something won't work before you really address why it will work, then just 
know about that about yourself and start to change that. You know, when I work with somebody who is a high C, as an example, on the DISC, who is used to being very analytical, detailed, controlling. I mean, this is the kind of person who, you know, can look through your checkbook and find the, the two penny error that you made six months ago. I mean, I, I just keep moving. You know, I don't look for those kind of things, but this person would, would find that. But they also, if you said, um, this Sunday, you know, it's a special Sunday anyway. Why don't we after church, we'll all eat somewhere together and then come over to our place and we'll play volleyball in the front yard all afternoon. A high C may say, well, gee, what if it rains? Now he may see that or she as very practical, very realistic. And I would see that as quit being such a wet blanket, dude, just show up. The sun's going to shine. Don't worry about it. We don't even check the forecast. You need to check the forecast. Well, it's just different personalities. But when I work with somebody who has a high C like they do, tends to be very analytical and skeptical, and they say, gee, I want to really start my own business, I tell them, one of my concerns is that we're going to identify four or five things that are great potential fits for you. You're going to figure out why they won't work before we give it a chance to work at all. Know that about yourself. Expect it. So when we come there, don't give me this yes, but before we have a chance to even try something. Well, let's see. Jason says, I'm looking at doing a resource website for youth football coaches, maybe all youth sports coaches where I can provide them with full practice plans and playbooks. So they would be buying a program. Would it be okay to have other coaches add their content? And then would they get a portion of the sales of their content? Well, you can do it any way you want to. I mean, you can ask other coaches. Other coaches are going to be honored and thrilled to contribute content that they, you then use. Even if you use their names, people like to see their names in print. I mean, I, I have profiled hundreds of people in my writing. You know, if you read 48 Days, The Rudder of the Day, No More Mondays, um, Who Are You? Why Are You Here? I mean, lots and lots of things that I have out there where I identify actual people. I have never paid a penny in royalty to those people to share their stories. Now, I'm, you know, I, I guess I would graciously be glad to do that if, the, if it really were a realistic issue, but it really isn't. Those people are thrilled to have their stories there. I mean, we just had one of the guys who was at our writer's conference has just done a Chicken Soup for the Soul book with country music songwriters. So the stories behind the songs, it's wonderfully done. He doesn't give royalties to those people for their stories. Now he'll get royalties because he put, put it together in a book, but not the individual people who were profiled. Kent Julian was one of our speakers here. Kent has done a couple different books with youth pastors where he may have 11 other pastors submit a chapter. He does one. He puts it together. His name is on the front of the book. These guys are all profiled in there. They don't get royalties when the book is sold. Now they do have an opportunity to purchase the book and sell it themselves. So there's that incentive, but no, you don't need to expect to give royalties to people because you're using content of their intellectual property. Now you can make that clear. If you think there's an issue there, just let them know that you are creating a product that you're going to sell, but it would be very complicated, cumbersome and unusual for you to go back and give those people royalties. I have had countless people interview me for products that they're creating. I mean, just recently, somebody came here and did over an hour's worth of video out on my front patio for a product that he is creating. 
Now he'll create that as a training product with a lot of content from me. He'll sell it and I hope he makes a million dollars. I won't get a penny from that. I'm thrilled that he's doing that. I wish him a lot of success in doing that. And I have no interest in complicating things by me somehow getting a little bit of royalty on the back end when he sells that. You'll find people very open, very willing and eager to give you contributions that can make your products better without expecting anything in return. And that's typically how it's done. I mean, big name people who are interviewed for new books, they don't expect royalties. They know that it's one of these, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of things. They know it's good promotion for them. And more than anything, successful people, you will find that they are very willing to help you in your own path to success. Well, we are, well, I had some other things I wanted to play. I had some other questions here I wanted to get in, but we're just going to pass on those. As you know, we're at 48 minutes, so the bell's ringing, and we're going to get out of here. Hey, thanks for being part of this family. We've got an increasing number of people involved at 48days.net. You can check out our upcoming events, the coaching events. If you want to be a coach or a writer, join us for those. Golly, there are a lot of things that are coming up. You know, even if you... Um, Well, I hope that you're just involved. I hope that you know clearly where it is you're going and how you're going to get there, that you really do have your own path mapped out as you're on this path of creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, enjoyable, and profitable. Hey, let us know how we can help. Thanks for being part of the 48 Days community. Have a great week.